Welcome to the Speaking Podcast. You can find all our episodes on speakingpodcast.com, also on BitChute and YouTube. We also have the Awakening Podcast, Learn Polish Podcast, Meditation Podcast, and the Crypto Podcast. And all can be found on RoyCon.com. Today, my guest, please welcome Lindsay Pollack. Thank you, Roy, for having me. I'm glad to be here. So you might let the listeners know who's Lindsay. Sure. My name is Lindsay Pollack. I am based in New York City. I am the author of four books of career and workplace advice with a special focus on succeeding in the multi-generational workplace, whether you're just starting out or you've been working for a long time. And I have been a professional speaker for almost 20 years, primarily doing corporate training work, university uh, presentations, and keynote speeches. You, you didn't mention your best-selling author, which <laughs> and, and I read as well. Was it the New York Times? And the there was some you got of the week or of the month. So, you know, that, that's nice, uh, nice accomplishments. Thank you very much. Yes, I'm a New York Times best-selling author, Wall Street Journal best-selling author, and uh, my book, The Remix: How to Lead and Succeed in the Multi-Generational Workplace, was a book of the month with the Financial Times and the Wall Street Journal. Very proud of that accomplishment. Excellent. So I know that you've spoke in a lot of the universities, you know, Yale, Stanford, and is it Wharton and some other Harvard? And also you've spoke to a lot of like law firms and big companies. So you might kind of talk us through that because obviously different, like say a law firm is totally different. So how you adjust for the different audiences? Yeah, I get a lot of questions from people who are just starting out their speaking careers, how I've built those different lines of business and different audiences. I started as a college campus speaker. Um, I was in my 20s and young and sort of didn't feel that I had the reputation yet to speak at corporations. So I spoke to college students about how I had built my career what suggestions I had for them, and kind of what I wish I had known when I was a college student. And what started to happen is those college students graduated and got jobs and remembered me and sort of brought me in to speak at their companies. And the companies that were recruiting talent from college campuses saw me speak at various career fairs and events and said, well, if you can speak to them about how to get a job, can you also speak to them about succeeding in the workplace. I also, for several years, did contract freelance work for a corporate training company, and they had a lot of corporate contracts at all different kinds of businesses and industries. And that really gave me, I think, the confidence to know that if your content is really good and you can be a really good listener, you can adapt to different environments, as long as you're curious about what their most important topics are, what their terminology is. For example, at a law firm, they don't talk about employees, they talk about lawyers, right, or attorneys. So you have to get that kind of basic stuff right. But at the end of the day, I think people want to know that you're going to be entertaining, that you're going to be educational, and that you're going to be tailored to their needs. And that's how I like to think about kind of switching from those audiences. But as a speaker, it makes my life more interesting to have different audiences. You know, I think if I just spoke to one type of group, it might not be as fun and, and interesting as having these kind of different environments to speak in. And like when you started off, you know, a young 20-year-old, were you doing that uh, just free or were you actually getting paid? And how did you jump into it? Because a lot of people, they kind of don't know how to price themselves as well in the, in the marketplace. 
That's a really hard thing to, to get used to. I have done so many speeches for free. Um, I don't do as much now. I do very deliberate pro bono work. But yeah, at the beginning, I spoke for free all the time. I actually started um, because I was on a scholarship to graduate school from Rotary International, like local Rotary clubs. And part of the scholarship, I was from the US and I studied abroad in Melbourne, Australia. And part of the scholarship was that you had to give speeches at the Rotary Clubs to thank them for funding the scholarships. And Rotary Clubs don't pay you to speak. And I spoke at, oh gosh, probably 50, between 50 and 100 Rotary Clubs. And that was a great way to start because you have business people, they're interested in what you're talking about. And very, very slowly they would say, hey, you know, you spoke to my Rotary Club. Could you come speak at our professional association? Would you come speak at my company? And I think the first speak I, speech I got paid for was maybe $200 or $250 US. And then, you know, you very, 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 very slowly rise up. And I think pricing is really important because I think speakers, I'm, you know, often very vocal about pricing because I think speakers need to be honest about what they make because I've been at events. I'll tell you one story. I spoke at an event in the advertising industry. And my fee was $7,500 to give a keynote talk. And one of the women at the agency pulled me aside and she said, I just want you to know you were charged, you charged us half of what the male speakers charged. You were charging 7,500 and they were charging 15,000. And I thought, wow, I need to do a lot more research and ask a lot more pointed questions about what people are getting paid because you know, it is a very varied industry in terms of, of what different speeches pay. So I'm, I'm glad you brought that up. Like, I think people, you know, they're fair increasing it as well. But the, the reality is, you know, just kind of look at what the demand is and then start slowly increasing it. And I'm just curious, when you get into the likes of, say, Pfizer, Google or whatever, because obviously they've got offices in all over the states but obviously international as well do you get the opportunity then of going to different parts and if you do or people you know do you have to ask and kind of push that or is it something that internally they want to do it's really different company to company and it depends how closely their global divisions work with each other and really kind of where you're coming in so I work with some companies where it's almost like an entirely different organization globally, right? Where they don't have, you know, all that much interaction, even if they have the same name. Other companies, maybe you'll have one HR department that books me for speeches in all different locations. So it's really different. And I would encourage speakers to ask because if you don't ask, you don't know if they're looking for speakers in other departments or if you're even interested in that or have the expertise that would you know, sort of makes sense across. Um, I recently did an event for a bank uh, for their Asia market, and I had never worked in their US market. And I said, hey, would you make an introduction for me? Because I'm here and, you know, you're in Asia. So I do think you have to be a little bit gutsy, right? And advocate for yourself and ask for that business. Um, but it, it really depends on the company and the team that you're working with in the budget. But I think you really do have to ask those questions because, you know, they might not have thought to recommend you to other people. And they'd usually be happy to do it if they were happy with your speech. Like you mentioned keynotes. So I'm always curious how people are structuring their keynotes. Just what's your kind of process? 
So I do a combination of keynotes and corporate training. And to me, the difference, well, first, I think I do teach public speaking as well. I think structure is so important to have an outline. And you want the audience to know that you're kind of taking them on a journey and that you're in control. You're not just going to be all over the place. So I'm a really big fan of having, you know, five takeaways or seven lessons, right? So that, you know, if there's seven lessons in my title and we're on number four, that there are three more to go. I think audiences like to feel that you have that structure within that overall structure. I think it's all about storytelling. And I think that's the difference between a keynote speech and maybe a corporate training, which is when people are listening to a keynote, it's usually a bit shorter, maybe 45 minutes, an hour. And they're probably in a big auditorium or, or watching a big Zoom call. And they want to remember stories and they want to be able to talk about what you said. I don't think people remember 17 tips. I think they remember a really memorable anecdote. So stories, historical anecdotes, um, even making numbers come alive. Something I learned from a, a speaking coach is, you know, rather than saying something like there are 42,000 children um, in poverty in this city, say there are enough children who didn't eat breakfast this morning to fill Yankee Stadium, right? That, that makes it powerful. And so if you think of these memorable moments to put in your keynote speech, I think when people walk out of the room and you say, what did you remember? They're going to tell those stories and those examples. I wrote a book called Getting from College to Career, and it had 90 tips. And I tell a story at the beginning of that book that I really struggled to figure out what I wanted to do with my career. And so I have a lot of empathy for anyone reading the book who is unsure of what they want to do. And I talk about when I came home from graduate school I basically lived in my childhood bedroom and sat in my bed and ate frozen yogurt every day under the covers. And people come up to me after reading that whole book of 90 tips and they say, oh my gosh, I so related to you eating frozen yogurt under the covers. And that's the one thing they remember because it made them feel comfortable that they weren't alone. So I think those human moments are really important in a keynote speech. And sometimes speakers are afraid to be vulnerable or talk about their failures, but I think that's what people connect with the most. Like when you're going to these different corporations and whether it's a kind of workshop or a speech this day, I mean, you know, sometimes the manager is making them go. Have you systems in place to kind of overcome the kind of, I don't want to be here. I always ask the client, hey, are people made to come to this or are they choosing? So I, I kind of like to know that going in is first of all. Number two is there are always going to be people in that audience who really want to be there, whether it's mandatory or not. I try in a live event to look for those faces, right? Seek out the people who seem to be having fun. I think we try to look at the person who's falling asleep or looking at their phone. I try to look for the people who are nodding and smiling and taking notes and kind of find my people because it makes me feel better. And there is a bit of a challenge to it to make sure that everybody gets some kind of takeaway, that everybody feels like there's something good for them. Um, there's always going to be some people who don't like it or don't want to be there or are never going to pay attention. So I, I always seek out the ones who, who do want to be there. I think that's a very important point. I remember I done an open mic TEDx and a, a guy prior to it had said to me, concentrate on the people that are actually, you know, engaged and everything. And there was one guy that was like 
before I even started, he, he looked like he was going to go to sleep. His legs were and his arms were crossed. And if I hadn't listened to what he had said, and I just, you know, there was a lot of people that kind of got engaged with what I was saying. But most people, they don't do that. They do the opposite. They go for the negative side of things. And it's actually a very important point that you've mentioned. You know, the, look, the people that are in, you keep, and by doing that, you probably wake up the other ones that are kind of on the fence. Totally. Although it's funny. I do that. And then there'll be someone who looks like the person you mentioned where they're, they're, they look like they're sleeping or they're on their phone. And sometimes that person will come up to me and say, I loved your talk. You know, I was really taking it all in with my eyes closed, or I was on my phone taking notes on everything you said, whereas I thought they were on Instagram, you know, so you never know whether you're connecting or not. And I think that's what experience builds too, is if you're confident that your content is really, really good, even if somebody doesn't love all of it, you know that there's value in there for everybody, but always a good idea to look for the smiling faces. Yeah, and like with that, because I've heard as well, I mean, I know that I asked one of the guests because he, he he was working on facial expressions and everything. And I said, when I'm doing a live show, sometimes I look like I'm depressed and I'm like, I'm totally engaged. And he said, that's, that's normal. Eh? So sometimes we, you know, we could be looking at someone thinking, <laughs> but that just might be their thinking phase or their, you know, totally in deep thought at what you're saying. I do think as a speaker, though, you have to bring the energy. I once was in the audience and I went to an evening event and the speaker came up on stage and pulled over a stool and said, I hope you don't mind if I sit down to give this presentation. I'm a little tired tonight. And I was like, you're the speaker. You need to make me come alive. So particularly during COVID when so much was on Zoom, I know we all had Zoom fatigue. So I felt really responsible when I was the speaker to bring the energy. I would sweat giving presentations over, you know, on camera because I felt really responsible for making people feel energized because it's very hard to do that in a video call. So I think really it is part of your job as a speaker to be energizing um, not everybody's going to take you up on it, but you have to have more energy than everybody else for sure. And you know, like you mentioned, Zoom, thankfully, a lot of that is ending now, but uh, and that's kind of hybrid as well. But what did you do to keep the energy up? And like, what tricks did you learn to connect better with the audience? You know, I'm not sure if it's going away. I'd love to hear what you're hearing from your guests. I think there's going to be a combination because I think a lot of companies really want to keep some level of online training. A lot of conferences are now offering an in-person event plus an online event. So I think there's maybe more opportunities for speakers. But to me, I had to, I love being in person. I love it, right? That's why I do the work that I do. And I missed it. And I had to kind of make a conscious choice. First of all, I was so incredibly grateful to have work because I was worried that nobody would hire speakers at all when we weren't getting together in person. And, and for two or three months, they didn't. So I was extremely grateful for every Zoom or Teams presentation I had. But I very quickly learned, number one, I had to be twice as energetic and really bring that to the presentation. I also came to really appreciate using chat. So when I do any kind of presentation, whether a corporate training or a keynote, I put into my presentation a lot of what I call quick response moments where I say, hey, everybody type in a word 
that you think of when I say millennial? Everybody give me one word about how you feel about hybrid work and just getting people, not polls, but just kind of quick answers. And then please, you know, share your thoughts, whatever it is. I tried to use that kind of ongoing chat as a way to engage the audience and also to make it feel more live so that it wasn't like me delivering a speech on a camera with no interaction. So I think using the chat was probably the biggest um, outcome that I took from, from the Zoom presentations. Like I, I have seen that and I, you know, when, peop when people use that strategy and I, it, it's good because it engages people, but on the opposite side of the spectrum, then you've got people that start uh, having conversations or just constantly writing. And if I'm trying to listen to you in a Zoom and you just have the right thing and you don't know who's writing it, is it important? And I think you're taking your focus away. Do, do you, have you found that? I don't do it consistently. I, I think, I guess there are some presentations where people have a whole dialogue going in the chat. But in my mind, those are the people who are probably going to be whispering during your presentation anyway. So it's just like their personality and, and people can always turn it off. Um, but I, I certainly don't, you know, I do it at, at points um, during, but. Yeah, no, no, but I, I like it on, on, on yours. I, yeah. I, I, I get that and it, it keeps people focused, but it's just because uh, I've seen it and I know that it annoys some people. Yeah, as well. I turn it off a lot. Too. So you can yeah, actually sure. turn it off that it's not flat. You can minimize the chat window so that. Yeah, you I know that, but it still it. kind yeah. of comes up red or whatever. I know. They're showing the box, and the problem is, I think curiosity. You know, we're always going. Is this a link they're sharing that might be important or something like that? So. You know, one of the things I can I do as a facilitator, if something is really going off in the chat, I'll kind of stop and say, "Hey, let's all take a look at the chat for a minute because there's a lot of dialogue going on there." I'll kind of pause what I want to say so that people don't get distracted. So I think that's one strategy okay. that you oh, can use is to yeah. kind of build that into your presentation, knowing that you'll take those moments. Just like if somebody gets on a tangent with a question and it seems to drop a lot of energy, you as a speaker can kind of go with that for a minute. Um, it's funny, the, I think when you're starting out as a speaker, stuff like that is very scary because it takes you off of your track. Having done this for 20 years, I love those moments because it makes it more interesting and fun and different, you know, and I always learn something. So. I don't mind those tangents and I actually build in time for that. Whereas I think when I was just starting out, I would have been a lot more nervous to have something like that happen. Yeah, perfect, perfect. And like when you're kind of building a career as a speaker, then like branding yourself and everything, what's your advice on that? You know, it's really hard. There are a lot of people out there and, and I'll be really honest. I'm not an overnight success. I've been doing this for 20 years. And I've known people for a long time and I have a long, long track record and it's still not easy. Um, I think the most important thing is, is what Jane Atkinson, who's a, a speaking coach I admire, she says, choose your lane, which is don't try to be all things to all people, right? I can speak about any topic to any group all the time. I stayed for about 10 years as a college campus speaker, giving career advice to college students. I was very, very, very targeted. And over time, I expanded to more communication skills, managing multi-generational teams, but I still only have about five presentation topics on my website. I think when you give a list of 50 topics, it actually hurts you. You think that you're gonna serve more people, but I think the more targeted you are, the more likely people are to book you, they'll still ask you, hey, I know you talk about communication. Could you also talk about networking? 
but I think people go too broad too soon. And so nobody knows what they're really good at. The other thing is I did a ton of speaking for free, but I would say, you know, I'm available, you know, for bookings, you know, I would love to follow up with anybody who's interested in a presentation at, at your organization. I think I always felt that the speaking was my marketing. So I never did a lot of email campaigns or video mailings. It was just inviting people to see me speak and say, if you like it, that's the product, you know, would you like to book it? So I think the more you speak, the more people are going to find out about what you do. I think kind of just a straight email strategy has not been the way I've pursued business. I think that's a better strategy as well. And uh, like with the social media then, because that's something that I'm, you know, I'm interested in. I'm bamboozled with it, to be honest. It's like, it's it's a time suck, to be honest. But I'm just wondering, which is your kind of, I presume LinkedIn would be a big one for, for what you're doing. You're exactly right. And I was a LinkedIn trainer for six years. I taught LinkedIn. So I, I feel very connected to that network. I had done a little bit of everything originally because I felt like I had to be everywhere. And I will be honest with you, Facebook and Instagram just burned me out. They just made me unhappy. And maybe I got a tiny bit of business, but LinkedIn was so much more valuable to me personally and professionally in a place I felt more comfortable that I am no longer available at all on Instagram or Facebook. I've completely deleted my personal and professional accounts. And I have basically tripled down on LinkedIn. I post almost every day. I co-host a LinkedIn live show. I've done my first LinkedIn learning course. I'm now doing my second. I really feel most comfortable in that environment. And I think it's another example of choosing your lane. I don't think you can be super active on six networks. I think you have to really decide what feels best to you. And and I think it's just a personal choice and then really, really go for that. And I don't think I've missed out on a ton of opportunities by not being on the other networks. And, And maybe for someone else, their number one is Instagram. But for me, it's always been LinkedIn. No, I, I think that there's a lot of people, they try to be on everything. And I believe, yeah, you you build one very strong. And yeah, you can dabble on the others just to kind of get the bit of lead generation coming in. But the reality is, uh, yeah, and I, I think for professionals, it's it's LinkedIn. It's uh, I've just uh, finished reading um, the LinkedIn for Dummies because I had the girl <laughs> Donna Sudula, I think her name is, uh, on, on the show. And now I have to action it. It's like the amount of things, but you'd realize how you can actually monetize on it and do so many different things by doing it professionally instead of just because half the time we just kind of copy and paste. We never spend the attention to do something properly on these channels. And I'll tell you, um, because I was officially trained by LinkedIn and how to teach it, Reid Hoffman, who was one of the founders of LinkedIn, always said, he thought people used LinkedIn wrong and he invented it. He said, I think people use LinkedIn wrong. I think they go into LinkedIn and think, what can I get from LinkedIn today? And he said, a better approach is to say, who can I give to today? Who can I support? So commenting on other people's stuff, offering answers to people's questions, liking their, you know, their things, watching other people's videos is just as important, if not more so than trying to promote yourself. And I try to live by that rule. And like a lot of, even with the YouTube videos, whatever it is, most people, they just keep putting it out there and they forget it's all about the engagement. And when you engage, then people check you out and then they find whether it's a podcast or, you know, you're a coach, whatever it is, 
then they start kind of liking you and following you and then which could lead to in turn to business but yeah unfortunately i i, I kind of think it's very similar to bni i don't know are you familiar with bni have you ever been involved with bni mm-hmm. but there's people that come into bni and they're like with their hands up they're going this doesn't work and they, they never bring whereas i i was in bni for about three years in ireland and i just you know it was my objective constantly get referrals for people i never thought of it and I got so much out of that. You know, it just comes back. But yeah, with the LinkedIn and everything, you need to constantly engage with it. I love that. And and I think a lot of people, speaking is a very weird business, right? People are like, you, you do what? Like, what? And, and a lot of people are very interested in it because it sounds great, right? Give a speech, get a check. And, and there's a lot that goes into it. But I'm just always grateful to have the opportunity to be on a stage and speak to people. And I'm so curious what people think. And I want the feedback. And and I think when you approach it with that mindset, that it's a privilege to be able to do it, it's not like I'm going to give a speech and tell you everything I know. It's like, I really genuinely want to help you. I think that people feel that difference. And I think it's really important to me in the speaking business to not be that sort of guru on the stage who thinks they know everything, but to really engage with your audiences and you know, some of my favorite things are when people come up afterwards and talk about the content. So it really is a dialogue as much as it seems like a one-way conversation. And I think that's, again, you know, to your point about the Zoom, you see the dialogue right there in Zoom in a way that sometimes you don't on a stage. And so that's been really interesting as a reminder that it's a two-way conversation. And like with, with PR then, because I know I, I have the list of different, I mean, you've been in the Today Show, New York Times, Wall Street Journal, CNN, and, and other things. Were they all connected with the book or was there sometimes just connected with the speaking? All of the above. And again, I kind of play the long game. There are reporters who I spoke to 20 years ago who still call me. So I think when you give good information to people, they keep calling you. Um, I wrote many, many times for free for a lot of those publications so that they see my name in print, you know, and when you Google me, you see that I've been quoted um, in a lot of stuff. But I, I think more than anything, it's about having a specific expertise, right? So if you say you're a business expert, nobody's going to call you. But, you know, I say, oh, I'm an expert on working with different generations in the workplace. And then when people are looking to write about that topic, my name pops up. So I think the more specific your expertise, the more likely the press are to contact you. Um, I also think, again, it's about giving. I follow a lot of journalists and media people on Twitter and LinkedIn. I comment on their stuff. For many, many years, I subscribed to that publication, Harrow, H-A-R-O, Help a Reporter Out. And when people said they needed someone, I jumped in and offered my help. So there are things you can do. I think you and I met through Podmatch. Like, I don't just hope that podcasters call me. I belong to a site that makes sure that we find each other. And I think something like Harrow for somebody who wants to get more press is a really good way to start because you're not wishing and hoping you're being strategic about answering requests from reporters who really need it. So I think use every tool available to try to find those, those matches. Uh, with the uh, harrow I, I i signed up for that but i didn't kind of do it right i just kind of put in all the information and i just got bombarded with emails and i was like i saw i think you have to when you get into these things you have to understand exactly how they work and then to work them properly like the pod match i understand that i i love that the guy that founded that alex i mean 
it is incredible. It has made my life so much easier. I mean, it's it's brilliant for guests and for the podcasters because there's like the scheduling, you know, everything you can pick, you can get all the profiles. So you can check out somebody straight away. Isn't it totally reduces the amount of correspondence back and forth, which we all, you know, there's only we all have the exact same time in the day. And you know, with podcasts, and I try to crunch it as much as I can, and he has made it so much easier. The world is so different. I mean, when I started out, none of this stuff existed and it was really hard. And now my philosophy is use every tool available to you. If you want more press, join Harrow. If you want to do more podcasts, join Podmatch. Like if you want to do speaking, go look at Rotary Clubs. Like there are so many places, but to your point, it takes a lot of work, right? None of this stuff is easy. You have to be willing to put in the work. Um, I'll tell you a story when, when COVID hit, you know, my speaking business, practically disappeared for a couple of months until people started booking Zoom calls. And I thought about um, maybe doing some work as an adjunct professor for a college. And I had a colleague who was an adjunct teacher at two universities. And of course I fell into that feeling of like, well, she's better than I am. People like her better, she's more successful. And so I called her up and I asked her how she got those adjunct jobs. And she said, I applied to 200 positions. And I thought, oh, right, you have to do the work. It's just about doing the work, it's not magic. Anybody can do it. And I think I'm such an example that if you do the work consistently over time, you know, you can have a lot of success, but it doesn't just come to you. There's a lot of legwork and, you know, really hard days and just a lot of work that goes into all of it. And, you know, I think you're an example of that as well. If you want to be successful, you have to do the work. Absolutely. Finally, you're, you, you're a coach for professionals as well, I believe, yes? I do not coach professionally. I, I think I coach um, for fun on the side, but I do not coach professionally. Okay. Okay. So you're like helping people with speaking in the speaking journey, basically. I do uh, speaking trainings. So I'll do a, a group training uh, where people do it. Occasionally I do one-on-one -on -one coaching for speaking, which is really fun. And I'd love to do more, but uh, for now I usually do it in a company where I do a professional speaking program. Okay. Brilliant, brilliant. So listen, Lindsay, really enjoyed the conversation. So you might let people know how can they get in contact with you? Thank you so much. It was a pleasure to be here. And I'm going to say LinkedIn is the best way to find me, Lindsay Pollock. I have a brand new course called Developing Organizational Awareness. And you can also come to my website, lindsaypollock.com. Perfect. And I'll make sure I put all the links in the podcast description. Thank you very much. Thank you. It was a pleasure. For the Speaking Podcast, you can find other episodes on speakingpodcast.com, also on BitChute and YouTube. Be sure to give us a thumbs up, five star rating, it all helps. Until next week, take care.